Hi, I'm James. And I'm Anthony. And this is Words and Numbers, presented by FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. This episode, Ant, just like last week, is brought to us by our good friends at 3on6. Dr. Randy Roberts invented the 3-on-6 procedure as a new way to replace a full set of teeth using dental implants and bridges. Dr. Roberts wanted to come up with an effective and affordable alternative to uncomfortable dentures and something that was much less expensive than traditional dental implants, which can run as high as $80,000. That's a lot of cabbage, Ant. With Robert's 3-on-6 procedure, you end up with teeth that are comfortable, that look natural, that you can clean yourself, need never be removed, and cost a fraction of what traditional dental implants cost. You can find a provider and get yourself a free consultation by visiting 3on6.com. That's the number 3, the word on, and the number 6. 3on6.com. You'll get a free scan of your mouth to determine whether you qualify as well as some financing information. So go over to 3on6.com, visit our friends, and learn more about this revolutionary procedure and find yourself a provider near you. So, what's new and exciting in your world this weekend? I just know this is going to suck. I don't know how I know, but I just do. An Arizona couple who prefer not to be named has played the state lottery for the past 40 years. This year, right before purchasing a ticket, they found a lucky penny. And wouldn't you know it, won the largest jackpot in Arizona's history, $410 million. I think, Ant, that we've got one of them correlation causation issues here. I don't think the penny had a damn thing to do with it. Oh yeah, that's absolutely right. They decided, as many people do, to take the lump sum payment, $316,800,000, of which they'll pay about $90 million in taxes, leaving them with around $230 million. Our last episode dealt with our attempts to bring intuition to extremely large numbers like this. So I wondered how I would describe $230 million. $230 million is enough money to buy 1,000 typical U.S. houses or 3,000 top-of-the-line Teslas. That's a lot of both of those things. It's a lot of both of those things. $230 million would pay for all four years of college for 7,500 students. Do you believe that? Well, perhaps Twitter will explode with all kinds of people telling these nice people how they should spend their money, kind of like everybody does with Jeff Bezos. And all of a sudden you realize why they didn't want their names published. That's right. Can't say I blame them. That much money would pay this month's cable bill for every resident of Chicago with enough left over to pay for each of them to go out for a nice dinner. It would pay for a brand new Samsung Galaxy S20 for every resident of Orlando, Florida. That's including children and babies. And they could also sponsor Words and Numbers for at least six months. (laughs) Right, yeah. You could fund Words and Numbers for the rest of our run. Or $230 million would fund the federal government for 25 minutes. (laughs) That's actually longer than I would have thought. Yeah, it was a little bit longer than I would have thought too. But here's an interesting thing. People often ask, if I were to give them one piece of advice about how to become a millionaire, what would it be? Most people who know anything about finance would give the same piece of advice, which is that time is on your side. Use it. For example, I ran some numbers here. If over the course of your working career, let's say 45 years, you put away savings, $9 a day, just $9 a day, turns out to be like $3,500 a year. $9 a day, put it in a portfolio like an S&P 500 something that yields the average return for stocks. 
you will end up at your retirement, adjusted for inflation, with $1 million. That's a lot of money. That's just $9 a day. But it's the 45 years that does it. If only I had a time machine, I could go back in time and start doing that. Right, but, right. alas, it's too late for us. Yeah. As with all generations, we tell our children. My parents told me, I tell them, I didn't listen to my parents, my children aren't listening to me. And so we just pass on this very good piece of advice that virtually no one listens to. Yep, that sounds exactly right. I'm going to make this a little more depressing. Do you remember last year when a journalist in San Francisco had his home raided in what was almost immediately declared an illegal search? Yeah, vaguely, vaguely, yeah. I'm going to put a story in the show notes so people can refresh themselves of the details. But here's the uncomfortable thing that's just come out a year later. The police department ordered, I believe it was a lieutenant acting on orders from above even so, ordered that everybody involved with that illegal search turn off their body cameras. Oh, wow. I think this might cause further difficulties. Right. We'll have to wait and see. But the journalist, a guy named Stephen Carmody, has already received, I believe, $369,000 in the form of a settlement for what had already come to light. One wonders if we're going to continue down that road and punish the police department a little more. All of a sudden, right, public sentiment is not with the police. This would be the absolute perfect time for him to start agitating for more. So I'm kind of curious to see what happens here and to see if heads actually roll for a change. Firing police officers all of a sudden seems to be something that's much more possible than it was, say, a year or two ago. So I wonder if anybody will be held accountable for this. And I think that's really one of the few ways you can hold them accountable. A 360 some thousand dollars settlement. The police department didn't pay that. The taxpayers paid that. The taxpayers did. Of course they did. Of course they did. But so it goes. I mean, it's always some variation on this theme. Until it comes directly from the police department's budget or out of the individual's pockets. And as long as we have qualified immunity, of course, that won't happen. More on that in a minute with Clark Neely. But you could see where at least there might be some possibility of accountability here. Which brings us, of course, to the foolishness of the week. We're going to go to Duluth, Minnesota, where the mayor has decided that Duluth will no longer or should no longer use the word chief in any of its job descriptions. I saw that. What on earth is wrong with these people? That chief might be offensive to someone. First, I would like the nice people from Duluth to produce the people who are offended by the use of the word chief. But here's where it gets interesting. Everybody automatically thinks, okay, this is going to be some Native American thing. No, not the case at all. The word chief, the etymology draws all the way back to 1300. It's a Latinate. It comes from the term for head, kaput, and moves forward from 1300 to yesterday. Nowhere along the way is it specific to Native Americans. It was the English word, a term of respect, that the English speakers used when they met the Native American who appeared to be in charge. And this is somehow so offensive that Duluth, Minnesota can no longer use the word in any of its official job titles. This is so far beyond foolish, we have gotten to the point where everybody's offended by everything, and it's my expert opinion that everybody needs to cut it out now. 
I saw that and I saw it about the same time that I saw a news article to the effect that whoever it is that produces Aunt Jemima syrup was removing Aunt Jemima's picture from the product. The author noted that Landa Lakes Margarine had removed the American Indian from their packaging and then pointed out kind of tongue in cheek, well, look at where we end up if we keep doing this. The only faces that will appear on our products are those of white males. That will be offensive too. I do hereby propose that every mascot for every product from this point forward become a duck. <laughs> Why a duck? Because I love ducks. My feelings towards ducks are well known. I'm sure someone somewhere is going to find a cause to take offense at your ducks. Well, screw that guy. <laughs> Clark Neely is back with us this week. Clark is the Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute and author of Terms of Engagement, How Our Courts Should Enforce the Constitution's Promise of Limited Government. Clark, welcome back to Words and Numbers. Thank you. We wanted to have you back to discuss the recent news out of the Supreme Court regarding qualified immunity. There's a whole cascade of questions that go along with that, but maybe we could start off by you giving us a summary of what just happened. Well, the really down-low summary is that after flirting with qualified immunity for a full year, the Supreme Court essentially stood it up on prom night. They had about a dozen qualified immunity-related cases that it looked like they were seriously considering taking up in order to do something with qualified immunity. And then this most recent past Monday, we found out that they had denied cert, meaning not going to take up these cases and kick the can over to Congress. Any idea why they did that? Yeah, let me give you an image. Imagine you have an airplane that's flying and the co-pilot dumps all the fuel, severs the hydraulic lines and jams the stick in a way that causes the plane to head down towards the ground, then turns to the pilot and says, I think you ought to be the one to land the plane. Essentially, that's what happened here is the Supreme Court made a horrendous mess by inventing this qualified immunity doctrine out of whole cloth that causes innumerable injustices, doesn't work at all. I mean, the thing is so jury rigged that it doesn't even make any sense. And just at the moment when it looked like they were going to clean up their own mess, they blinked and turned to Congress and say, you know, you guys take a crack at this. Before we get too far into it, you had talked about this before of the Supreme Court creating qualified immunity out of whole cloth. Can you give us a brief definition of what qualified immunity is and then tell us how the Supreme Court created this? Yeah, absolutely. So qualified immunity is a defense to a civil rights lawsuit. So when somebody alleges that a police officer or other government official has violated their rights, it's a very powerful defense that is available to that government official in that civil rights case. So the law that Congress created says that if a government official violates your rights, or I should say a state or city level government official violates your rights, you get to sue them in federal court. And we call that law Section 1983 because that's where it appears in the U.S. Code. But it's 150 years old, and it says quite simply that a state actor, meaning anybody who's employed by the state or by a city, shall be liable to the party injured for the deprivation of any right. That's quite a broad scope of relief, and it says that if you're a government official, you violate somebody's rights, they get to sue you. What happened was that the Supreme Court invented out of whole cloth this defense that we call qualified immunity, where now if you want to sue a police officer or other government official, it's not sufficient for you to allege that they violated one of your rights. You actually have to allege that they violated one of your clearly established rights. Those two words, clearly established, 
were judicially inserted into the statute in a complete and naked and totally illegitimate act of judicial policymaking. They just made it up out of whole cloth. So now what you have to do is you have to be able to show that there is a pre-existing case in your jurisdiction where a police officer did the exact same thing to somebody else and has been told by the courts you're not allowed to do that. If that case doesn't exist, then the right is not clearly established according to the judicial interpretation. Qualified immunity will apply and your case will be thrown out even if everybody agrees that your rights were violated, not because you weren't harmed, not because your rights weren't violated, everybody agrees that you were, but instead simply because there doesn't happen to be a pre-existing case on point. You might think that I'm being hyperbolic. You might think that I'm exaggerating. I assure you that I'm not. The primary function of qualified immunity in our system is to relieve police officers from liability in cases where everybody agrees that they have committed a rights violation and they still receive a get-out-of-accountability-free card in the form of qualified immunity. The last time we discussed this with you, the Supreme Court had collected a bunch of these cases. They had come up to the court, and the court had delayed dealing with them. Your estimation at the time was that the court was going to gather all these cases together and consider them all at once. Do you think it was the court's intent to actually address those cases up until the recent incident with George Floyd? Let's say that it's my surmise. The process by which the Supreme Court decides which cases to take and which cases to turn away, and keep in mind, they get 10,000 cert petitions, meaning 10,000 times every year people ask them to take a look at their case. They only say yes about 60 or 65 times. So it's a very tiny fraction. It's a heavy lift. But what they did was very unusual in terms of holding these cases, not making a decision, allowing them to pile up. It's certainly, there's no doubt that qualified immunity was on the Supreme Court's radar screen. But the process by which they make the decision, do we take a case or do we not, is one of the blackest boxes in all of Washington, D.C. So my surmise, and I want to emphasize that it is only a surmise, is that they were about to say yes. It's hard to imagine why they would have allowed these cases to pile up. And there was so much attention that was being generated by Cato and by others about qualified immunity, about the role that it plays. There had been instances where I think it was four or five different justices at different times had written opinions where they said, we really ought to take a look at this. The short answer is yes. I think that in all probability, the fact that Congress suddenly showed an interest in enacting some kind of response, some kind of reform to policing, probably caused the Supreme Court to pull back and say, I want to go back to my earlier metaphor. If you've got a plane that needs to be landed, you probably don't want the co-pilot and the pilot trying to land it at the same time and fighting for the controls. My guess is that's the best face you can put on the Supreme Court's decision not to take up qualified immunity. Their thinking being, if Congress is going to be working on the issue of police accountability more globally, perhaps we shouldn't be working on a parallel track on qualified immunity, which may or may not be part of Congress's overall solution. So let's step back. Let's let the policymaking branch do the policy. If only they had said that when they were thinking about creating qualified immunity. But of course, that horse left the barn a long time ago. If it is Congress that's left with this in its lap, they're going to have to legislate with qualified immunity on the books, right? They're going to have to legislate around this problem somehow. And it's not exactly clear to me how they can do that at all. I'm so glad you made that point because the Supreme Court has created this gigantic mess. I can't even emphasize what an incredible mess qualified immunity is. It's a mess in terms of the results that it's produced. It's a mess in terms of trying to make it work. 
Imagine a car that's held together with bubble gum and duct tape. And instead of just taking us back to the language that the Congress actually enacted, that state actors shall be liable for the deprivation of any right, and then letting Congress try to fine-tune from there, the Supreme Court shoved this gigantic mess effectively onto Congress's plate and said, hey, you guys clean this up. And, you know, Congress in its best day is not all that good at even sort of base-level policymaking, but to put them in a position where they have to come in and, first of all, clean up the Supreme Court's mess and then try to get the right policy dialed in, that's a lot to ask of any branch of government, but I would say maybe particularly this branch of government. For anybody who pays attention to Congress, I think we all know that what that suggests is beyond them institutionally speaking. What you just suggested will not happen. Well, it might. You know, look, when you see protesters with a cardboard sign that says abolish qualified immunity, and I've seen a number of those coming out of protests, when people in the street are talking about otherwise esoteric sounding legal doctrine like qualified immunity, that is a sign of progress. But I think the biggest fear is this. There is a very clear division in Congress, not purely Republican versus Democrat, although it has that flavor to it still. But the divide is this. There's some people who understand that qualified immunity is the cornerstone of our near-zero accountability policy for law enforcement, and that the only way to restore some measure of appropriate accountability for law enforcement, including particularly police, is to get rid of qualified immunity. And then there's a faction that simply wants to ram through a basket of attractive window dressing. They want it to be as free of substance as possible so that it doesn't actually change anything, but they're hoping they can bamboozle people into believing that something has been done simply because it appears as though something has been done, but without any of the substance. Who wins as between those two factions will determine whether there's meaningful police reform out of this Congress or just, as I said, a basket of completely meaningless window dressing, which is what I would say is still where the center of gravity for Republicans is. But we're doing our level best along with a bunch of other great organizations to try to move them off of that position. You've got your work cut out for you because that latter position is what we've come to expect from Congress. Lip service and wallpaper nothing that gets right down to the core of the issue. I think the only thing that gives me any pause in saying that is that when you've got rioting in the streets, and this is one of those issues that brought the rioters out, maybe, just maybe, people will take it seriously. But I would submit that if Congress doesn't take this seriously, they've abdicated the rule of law. Oh, I think so. And I think they might reap the whirlwind. There's a number of Republican senators whose seats are up for grabs in November, and I think if they try to get away with nothing more than window dressing, they might reap the whirlwind come November, and I certainly hope they do. James and I have written on qualified immunity a number of times, and we've both shared the good articles you've written on it. Several people have written back to me with criticisms that go along these lines of eliminating qualified immunity is a nice gesture, but the fact is... There aren't that many instances in which police are actually protected by it, and therefore something more substantial needs to be done. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I'm just curious why people can be possibly so confident that they have such a great handle on the empirical data. My team at Cato and I have been working very hard to try to get our arms around the data, and we're lawyers. We have access to all the federal court filings and so forth. It actually is really, really difficult to even just try to figure out the total number of cases in which qualified immunity has been asserted. 
There are tens of thousands of cases that get filed every year in the district courts. There's no comprehensive way of searching those filings. There is electronic filing, and the federal court system does its level best to try to make sure that it's as difficult as possible, for example, to scrape those cases, to put them all together, to aggregate them. So I just don't know how these people are so confident that they have a clear picture of how often qualified immunity gets asserted and what happens when it does, because I sure don't, and I've been doing my level best for almost three years to try to get a handle on that information. More than that, Clark, isn't it the case that a number of cases don't even make it to court because attorneys won't take them knowing that they're facing a qualified immunity defense? Oh, absolutely. I know that for two reasons. First of all, there's a UCLA law professor named Joanna Schwartz who's done a lot of empirical work on qualified immunity, and she has an article in which she specifically recounts how she asked civil rights lawyers who specialize in this kind of work whether qualified immunity plays a role in their case selection process, and every single one of them says, yes, absolutely, it plays a huge role, and we routinely turn away cases that would otherwise be meritorious because... It's not that we have any lack of confidence about being able to show there was a rights violation. It's that we've done the research and we know there's not a case where that exact same thing happened to somebody else already. And so we're going to get plowed over by the qualified immunity train. So it's not even worth trying to file that case in the first place. So, you know, it's the dog that didn't bark problem, but there isn't the slightest doubt that qualified immunity is discouraging people from filing cases that would otherwise have been brought. I'm trying to get my head around this business about what's the wording you used? What comes to my mind is pre-existing condition. That's not it. There was a case like this before and the police were told, no, you can't do this. How do you get a case like that given qualified immunity? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's a question some lower court judges have been asking, including my good friend Don Willett, who's a judge on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that covers Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. He had a wonderful dissenting opinion in a case called Zadeh, Z-A-D-E-H, involving the warrantless search of a doctor's patient records. Literally, a bunch of investigators came into a doctor's office without a warrant or any judicial supervision and just started rifling through his patient records, highly confidential patient records, taking whatever they wanted. And when the doctor sued, the Fifth Circuit threw out the case on qualified immunity grounds. Because why? Because that exact thing hadn't happened before. And Judge Willett, in a dissent, said, you know, we haven't decided in this case whether or not that violated the Constitution. So how is the law ever going to develop? How is it ever going to mature? A police officer who commits a rights violation on day one and the case gets thrown out because that particular right was not clearly established can do the exact same thing on day two and day three and on ad infinitum. Now, once in a while, courts will sort of take that first step and say, look, the thing that happened in this case was unconstitutional. We're still going to throw the case out because we don't have a pre-existing case on point. But from now on, in this jurisdiction, understand that you cannot do that thing. But it is increasingly common for courts to omit that first step and simply take the easy out of saying, look, regardless of whether the thing that happened in this case was or wasn't constitutional, which is a hard question, so we're going to dodge it. What we do know is we don't have a case already on point with this exact set of facts. So qualified immunity applies. We throw the case out. Next time somebody brings us this exact same thing, we're going to do the exact same thing and the law will never develop. It's horrible. Just an example, I mentioned earlier, it's this kind of jury-rigged, horrible, like broken-down car of a legal doctrine. Who on earth would defend something that is as we have been describing it for the last 20 minutes? So where do we go from here? Is there any work that Cato's going to try to do to address this? Are we all just bound and determined to sit and wait until Congress acts or doesn't act? Yeah, so two things. I'm on the phone constantly with partner groups, with staff, 
on the Hill. I've been getting wonderful questions from staff of different offices, including, I think I can go so far as to say this, including at least one office that may be on the wrong side of the divide right now, but I'm getting questions that sort of feel to me like, if we had to abandon our current position and kind of fall back to another position, where should we end up? So I think that's a very fluid situation. I would not give up hope on Congress yet, and that's a big thing for me to say. The second thing we can do is if Congress drops the ball on this, I think there are two still possibilities that we can look to. If this Congress drops the ball, we got to think about coming back to whatever the next Congress looks like. And I got a sneaking suspicion the next Congress is going to look quite a bit different than the current Congress. I'm not positive about that, but I think there's a really good chance. And if we were to have a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president in January, then I think this issue could be resurrected, so to speak. Even if the legislative route becomes impossible, we can go back to the judiciary, and the strategy in the judiciary will be this. We've been encouraging lower court judges all along to speak candidly about their feelings about qualified immunity, to put stink on it, to cut right to the chase, to mock it, to ridicule it, to explain how terrible it is. And it's been very effective. It's amazing. I've never seen anything in my 20 years as a constitutional litigator. I've never seen lower court judges in a greater state of open revolt. There was actually a Fourth Circuit judge, the Fourth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals that covers the middle part of the eastern seaboard. This judge wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post a week ago saying he thinks qualified immunity is a bad doctrine. He wishes the Supreme Court would get rid of it. I've never seen that in my entire career. So what we'll do if we have to is we'll go back to the drawing board and we will continue encouraging lower court judges to throw absolutely every bit of stink on qualified immunity that they can. Why? Precisely in order to make the Supreme Court feel uncomfortable, to put all of the eyes on the Supreme Court and say to them, are you really going to stand by while the lower court judges are in an open state of revolt about this jury-rigged, illegitimate, cobbled-together, judicially-invented doctrine that's causing one injustice after another? Are you going to stand by and do nothing, really? I want to change gears for a moment. One of the things that I've heard people say in defense of qualified immunity is that, look, we're putting the police in a position where they're obligated to protect us and they require this qualified immunity in turn to protect them as they do this job. And one of the astounding things I've heard you say before is that police are actually not obligated to protect us. They are neither obligated to protect us nor do they pay civil rights damages awards out of their own pockets. Both of those premises are false. So as to the first one, there is a bedrock legal doctrine that says that whether the government has to protect you or not is completely up to the government. In other words, they have no legally enforceable duty to protect you. I don't even want to tell you the cases in which that doctrine has been affirmed because as a parent, they are so horrific. The most recent one is called Castle Rock. You can look it up. It involves a woman who got divorced from her husband who was very violent and turns out actually mentally unstable. She got a restraining order against him to keep him away from her and her children and she begged and pleaded the local police to enforce the restraining order, and they continued not to do it. Finally, he came and took the children out of her home, and she called them again and begged them to go and get the children back because he was in violation of a court order, and they again did nothing. I'm not going to tell you what happened in that case because I just don't have the emotional bandwidth to do it. It was the most horrific outcome you can imagine, and it was all due to the complete absence of commitment, the complete unwillingness of the local police to do anything to enforce this restraining order or even to go and try to protect these children when the woman said that they were in danger. When they were sued for the failure to protect these kids, and they did end up dying, 
their response was, hey, you know what? It's not our duty. It may be our job to protect people, but it's not our legal duty. And if we screw it up, you cannot sue us. Why? Because we don't actually have a legal duty to protect you. We can just do it if we feel like it. And if we don't feel like it, we don't have to. And the Supreme Court has upheld that claim that they do not have a legal duty. Repeatedly. And people wonder why we distrust the police in large number. I just wish I could tell you all of the different cases in which this doctrine has been sort of affirmed over and over again. There was one here in D.C. called Warren, the Warren case, which is ironic because this case came down around the same time that D.C. passed the law disarming all residents of the District of Columbia in the late 1970s. D.C. City Council passed a law that was effectively the functional firearms ban that Bob Levy and Alan Gura and I challenged successfully in the Heller case. And this case involved three women who were roommates. And to make a long story short, a couple of men broke into their home and spent the better part of the day sexually assaulting them. One of them, while two of them were able to hide upstairs, they repeatedly called the D.C. Police Department begging for help. And the D.C. Police Department's sum total response was to send a squad car to drive by slowly past the house and just look at the house and not even go and knock on the door. That was the sum total of their response. The two men who broke into the house later discovered the two women upstairs and things got even worse from there. And when they sued the police over their completely inept response, D.C. asserted this argument that they have no legal duty to protect citizens. And if they try but screw it up, they're still not liable. And no surprise, the courts embraced that take and said, yep, that is black letter law. The government never has a duty to protect you. They can if they want to. And if they try to and screw it up, too bad. Just out of curiosity, what would have happened if the women had called and not reported the sexual assault, but rather reported that there was a drug deal going down or that there was a police officer in the house who's been shot or something? Certainly there would have been response then. Right. I think maybe the most effective thing they could have done is called and reported an illegal handgun in the home because we know that D.C. has a zero tolerance policy for handguns and they get right on it. I don't want to be too morbid about it, but one of the things that struck me, I remember one of our plaintiffs in the Heller case, Shelley Parker, the reason why she wanted to be a part of the case was that she wanted to own a handgun because she lived in one of these gentrifying neighborhoods or transitional neighborhoods, I think is what real estate agents called it. And she would go outside and tell drug dealers to just get away from her home, get away from her block because she knew what they were doing. One of them threw a rock through the window of her car and then one night came to her apartment and tried to kick his way in saying, bitch, I'll kill you because he knew that she had been complaining about them and calling the police on them. The other thing she knew is that Washington, D.C. at that time had the slowest 911 response rate of any municipality in the country. And whatever was going to happen inside that apartment, if that person got through the door, was going to be over long before any Washington, D.C. police officer showed up. I think they've improved things marginally since then, but it is still the case that if you're the victim of a violent assault in most major cities, and your only option is to call 911, that's not going to save you. Do you know what is the response time in D.C.? I don't know what it is currently. I believe at the time of the Shelley Parker incident, it was somewhere between 11 and 13 minutes. Clark, we've heard every horrible thing you've just said for the last some minutes. Is there any optimism here? Any happy note you can send us away on? I think the optimism is this. The cat is out of the bag. The secret is out. The American criminal justice system is fundamentally rotten, and people are not going to take it anymore. And they particularly perceive that there is a massive double standard between the level of accountability to which the law enforcement community holds us as citizens versus the amount of accountability that it's willing to have for itself when the shoe is on the other foot. 
that bell cannot be unrung. People are angry, they are right to be angry, and they are not going to stop being angry. There will be a policy response to this. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but there will be a response and there should be a response. I think if we hold tight, we'll see it. Ant and I have talked about this. We do think there should be a double standard where the police are concerned. The police should be held to a much higher standard. You give a man a badge, a stick, and a gun and tell him to go out and police his fellow citizens, the bar should be set very, very high for him. I couldn't agree more. And one of the most discouraging, and I would even go so far as to say despicable things that I've heard people say is that if we hold police officers to the same standard as the rest of us, let alone the higher standard to which they should be held, then no one's going to want to be a police officer anymore. And keep one thing in mind. If we eliminate qualified immunity, that doesn't mean that they're automatically liable. It is not strict liability. All it means is that they'll have to go in front of a jury of their peers and explain what they did, why they did it, and why they think it was reasonable. And what they're really objecting to is to simply being required to go and explain to a bunch of fellow citizens why they did the thing they did. And I think that is incredibly telling. Clark Vanilli, thanks for coming by again today, and we'll see you real soon. Thanks so much, guys. And that's all the time we've got this week on Words and Numbers. Be sure to join us next week for something, well, probably not quite as exciting because Clark is pretty exciting, but we'll do what we can. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter. Handles are in the show notes, as always. Join our Words and Numbers backstage Facebook group where the conversation continues. And for crying out loud, will you people just be nice to each other? Just be nice to each other. I've had about all I can take. And catch you next week. See you next week, James.